You're listening to DraftKings Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. We're back. You know, Maze, last week, my voice was gone. A lot of people in the mentions at Basketball Illuminati on Twitter. You can follow us at B-Ball Illuminati on Twitter. I got Elmer Fudd. I got a lot of people saying I was sick. I needed a cough button. But we're back. Which part of the Thanksgiving plate cured your voice, Tom? Was it the cranberry sauce? Was it the gravy? It's gravy. It's always the gravy. Always the gravy. It's a lubricant for your throat. It clears up any of the flu, the RSV, the COVID, any sort of bug that's floating through the air this time of year. Gravy just takes care of it. We're all thankful for the gravy this year. You know what I'm thankful for? What are you thankful for, Tom? Chris Haynes. Oh, I'm always thankful for Chris Haynes, man. That's my guy. The best. He has a BR exclusive. Congrats on your move to BR, Chris. A new report with a means favorite, Sacramento Kings star De'Aaron Fox explains switch to clutch. (sighs) Why do people always say that about, like, I don't, I never said the kid couldn't play. I don't understand why people are stuck on that. Like, I just said John Morant was better. Yeah. And I've been proven, like, enormously right. Not just, like, a little right. It sounds like you're a little De'Aaron Fox on this, that it struck a chord. The accusations that you said something insensitive about De'Aaron Fox by saying... John Morant is who De'Aaron Fox thinks he is. Right. That's my favorite part of this story is that... Chris talks about this is a breakout year and Fox pushes back on it and is like, well, other than defending better and shooting better, I'm really playing the same. The only difference has been the winning. I'm like, oh. Th- those are two very important things. Three very yeah. important things. You're defending, yeah. you're shooting better, and you're winning games. But I don't think it's that much better than before. And that's my point. <laughs> The whole idea of the interview, the sit down was to squash the rumors that he is demanding a trade or a trade is in him that he's going to force his way out of Sacramento because he signed with Clutch. And I'm sitting here like, what rumors? I didn't hear any of that. In fact, I didn't even know you signed with Clutch. Maybe we're just media elites, Tom. Yeah. And we're not tapped into the pulse of the Sacramento beat where people were biting their fingernails and sweating profusely over the possibility that De'Aaron Fox might jump ship in Sacramento while he's having his best year 
No, I'm sorry. Why is having another solid year other than better shooting, better defense, and winning? And winning games. <laughs> I thought that the Kings would have you on their side now. I mean, now that they're turning their arena into the Death Star. It's the weirdest thing. I know Coach Brown. I know Wes Wilcox. I know Mark Jones is the play-by-play guy. I know Katie Christensen, the color commentator. I know my guy Kyle. I know so many people work for the Kings, and they are some of my favorite people in the world. And yet, somehow, I am painted as anti-King. I'm anti-Sacramento. I don't want to go there. (laughs) And lucky for me, for the last 16 years, I haven't had to go there. I think they should actually be excited. Didn't you light something under De'Aaron Fox? Yeah, you're welcome. You were the motivator. You were the one who said, get on John Morant's level. I can't even take credit. You know why? Because I said that shit two years ago. The butterfly effect, you know what I mean? The ripple starts two years ago, but now it comes together with the laser beam from the victories. I love the light beam. I think it's the greatest thing in sports. It's hilarious. My favorite thing is that they could have probably been doing it for the last two years and we just didn't know. (laughs) My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money. And you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but- all it took. Oh, we got books. We got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, as always joined by my five-star Illumin Army generals, co-presidents of the Illumination, Amin El-Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. We have quite a truthful show for you today. Things that everyone else is too afraid to touch, too afraid to talk about. That's why you come here. Mm -hmm. That's why we have this show. Mm -hmm. Dots that everyone else is afraid to connect information that people are afraid to uncover. You know what? I don't even know if they're afraid or just plain ignorant, Tom. What they look at the sheet, all they see are just random dots. We look at sheet. We see a pattern developing. See a constellation. Mm-hmm. We see it. Big Dipper, everything. Orion's belt, you name it. Yep. Little Dipper even. We keep our third eye open. Two eyes, you might see the Big Dipper, but third eye, you're going to see the little one, fellas. Big Dipper, Will Chamberlain. We've got a big show. Jeff Stotts from InStreetClothes.com, the injury expert. Mm. Lots of high-profile names that are succumbing to injury. We have lots of information we want to get into that I don't think the mainstream media is going to touch that are affecting your favorite team and the landscape of the NBA. Jeff Stotts of InStreetClothes.com. And we might actually get some Star Wars talk. Who knows? We're also going to do part two of some research that I did. 
You? Yeah, me. There's a segment. I forget what we call it. But anyway, there's a segment later where I do my own research. Oh. Last week we did traveling. Are you bringing a carry-on with you this time? Oh! That's right. Oh. That's right. Maybe we're going to go to, uh, you know, the Palms <laughs> Casino and talk about it. Why are you talking like Stewie Griffin? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you want to get in and antagonist, uh, protagonist. Uh, all right, Jeff Stotts, palming, all of that later in the show. But first, you are listening to the agenda with Tom Haverstrow and Amin El Hassan. Lakers lose last second. LeBron James tries to close out against a rookie and hits it right in his face. Mm. What's it all mean? What's actually happening? We saw a big celebration where Miles Turner missed the potential game-winning three, and then now I'm thinking maybe Miles Turner isn't a double agent trying to play for the Lakers. He seemed excited, guys. He seemed excited that they won the game. They beat the Lakers. Tom. Oh, my God. Sometimes it's like looking at the world through the eyes of a child. Uh, Is my third eye not open? Come on, man. What better way to sell yourself as a winner than to win <laughs> against the team that wants you. But he missed the shot. I mean, doesn't matter. Well, Nick Young famously celebrated for a missed shot on the Lakers. So maybe he was just doing an audition. I could do this. I could be part of this. Yo, it's funny because the real question is, if you're Miles Turner, do you really want to join that train wreck? He actually has something pretty good going in Indiana. You're going to be a free agent either way at the end of the year. So it's not like this is something you're locked into for life. At this point, do you want to jump ship to go play with those guys? I noticed Kevin Pritchard also jumped into that. The president of basketball operations for the Indiana Pacers ran onto the court to celebrate and get in on the mob after that shot goes in. You rarely see the GM or the front office executive. You never see that. Not even in the finals. I've never seen Bob Myers run out onto the court wild like Jim Valvano style you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) I wonder what that was all about and we have to kind of go back a little bit here to before the game okay on ESPN leading ESPN's coverage for the day was plugged in reporter Dave McMenamin who covers the Lakers and the story was essentially five questions about the proposed Indiana Pacers, Buddy Heald and Miles Turner trade that they were talking before the season. And then the Lakers, according to Dave McMenamin's reporting, backed off because they didn't want to put in the two first round picks, the 2027 and the 2029 pick. Here is what McMenamin wrote in the story. When the Lakers started the season 0-5, Wojnarowski reported LA would wait until around Thanksgiving before looking to upgrade the team. The thinking behind that timing, team sources said, was threefold. One, Lakers vice president of basketball operations and general manager Rob Palenka wanted to see how the group that assembled in the offseason featuring six players from last season's team looked together. Secondly, he wanted to give first-year head coach Darvin Ham the chance to bring his vision for reinvigorating Westbrook to life. And lastly, the third, he didn't want to come off as desperate with early season trade talk knowing other teams would take advantage in any potential negotiations. I mean, your third eye is widening as I'm talking wide open wide open look here's the reality you don't know what you don't know right if they were to make a deal now for instance who's to say better stuff isn't coming up 
Who's to say better packages? More importantly, who's to say interest for other things on your team? We keep talking about this Miles Turner Buddy Heel deal is going to take two first round picks to get done. But nobody ever said it had to be the Lakers picks. What if you can peddle something else and get a first from that and then throw that into the deal and you're fulfilling the two pick prophecy without actually exposing your own personal picks? So all of this was about being able to have the wherewithal to make the best deal possible. Because if we're being honest, what's the market for Miles Turner, who's got just this year left on his deal, who has an extensive injury history? What's the market? What team is giving up a first-round pick for the rental? I don't see it out there, not to that level. The only team, to my mind, that wants to do that and has the ability to do that would be the Lakers. I mean, the Nets need a big, but again, they're leveraged out. If you're the Lakers, it does you no good to jump at this right now without allowing at least the landscape to shake out of it. December 15th is the date, ladies and gentlemen, for a reason. For a reason. That's the earliest date when the deals that were signed last summer become eligible to be traded, a.k.a. the regret window is open, right? <laughs> uh, you're not quite what we were looking for. Buyer's remorse. Well, the kicker, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. The kicker in Dave McMenamin's story, this sentence, I think, is speaking louder and the eyes should be opening wider. Here's what he wrote. But even with more possibilities opening up December 15th, league business slows around the holidays, so the odds of any action before mid-January are remote. Mid-January, I mean, is there anything that happens in mid-January league-wide that isn't just a random day? Your non-guaranteed deals become guaranteed or you kill them and the 10-day contracts begin. Is there something else you're looking for? Yes, I mean, it's the everyone's trade eligible day. Oh, there it is. Yep. There's a little loophole here for those who sign contracts. They re-sign with their previous team and they got a raise of at least 20% mm-hmm. and their salary is more than the minimum and their team was over the cap using bird or early bird rights to sign them. Then you get pushed from the December 15th deadline to the January 15th. And what's interesting about this, guys, what's really fascinating is there are 22 players who are available for trade that previously were not available. Nick Claxton from Brooklyn. You got Tyus Jones in Memphis. But what I find interesting is one name, Zach Levine. Ooh. Zach Levine. Where'd he go to college, man? He went to UCLA. And who's his teammate in Chicago that was, you know, reported to be at LeBron James's estate and talking about a deal potentially joining the Lakers a couple years ago? Who was that player? That would be Southern California's very own DeMar DeRozan. And uh, if the Lakers needed a center next to Anthony Davis, does Chicago have any centers on their team at a low veteran minimum deal or somewhere around there? I was looking for the Nick Vucevic angle there, but they do. Andre (laughs) Drummond, come on down. Or is it Tony Bradley that you're looking for? Uh, It's Andre Drummond, (laughs) former Laker Andre Drummond. What I'm saying is that day, 
that Dave McMenamin is reporting that the Lakers might wait until mid-January before things start happening is coincidentally the same time that Zach Levine is released from his trade embargo time. And if you line up Zach Levine's contract, 37 million and DeMar DeRozan's contract and Andre Drummond, $67 million that they would have to exchange with the Lakers and magically Russell Westbrook, Patrick Beverly and Lonnie Walker, the fourth rounds up to about $67 million. The salary matches for that deal. That deal is gross for Chicago. (laughs) If you forget about two words, what's that? Victor Wembanyama. man. And this is the problem. This is the issue that I think, the magic of the play-in has created. Everyone is in within shouting distance of being good. Chicago, as of this recording, is two games under 500, 9 and 11. That places them on the outside looking in of the play-in picture. Also, that places them three games out of home court advantage. Until this cluster frees up, and I don't know if the cluster will free up, you're going to be stuck in this hellhole of should we or shouldn't we? And even though you don't have to be completely awful to get into the Wembenyama sweepstakes, you do still have to be pretty bad. And I don't know if Chicago can get that pretty bad, even if that's what they were going to do. I would argue that you could get more for each of those guys individually than you would packaging them and sending them to L.A. So the Lakers would have to give up their 2027 and their 2029 first round completely unprotected is what you're saying. Now, there's another conversation Nobody wants to have it. Nobody wants to have it. Seems like you want to have it. You look at that Laker roster. You see anybody with ties to the city of Chicago on that roster, boys? (laughs) Wait a minute. Any prodigal sons? Wait a minute. Come home, my wayward son. Isn't that the song? Carry on. Carry on. Carry on, my wayward son. To be continued on the carry. I never figured you for much of a Kansas fan, but it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> more of a Kansas State guy. You're saying that if the deal is to be had for those players, DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, see, the Bulls have $200 million mm-hmm. wrapped up in Zach Levine for the next four years and DeMar DeRozan next season. So if you're Chicago, you could get Anthony Davis and bring him home. Oh, is that is that who we're talking about? Mm. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to leave that open-ended. Sorry. Patrick Beverly was the Chicago guy I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's this other thing here. The reason why I mentioned Victor Wembenyama is because the Chicago Bulls have a top four protected pick. So in order for them to get a pick this summer, they have to be really bad. Is it early enough for them to wave the white flag, say, we are going to try to rebuild. We're getting off the Zach Levine money, off the DeMar DeRozan. We're going to retool, rebuild. And that allows them the chance to bring Victor Wembenyama, the next Michael Jordan, the greatest prospect since whoever, and bring Arturis Kornishovis, the next guy, the guys who's going to be able to keep Arturis Kornishovis' job for the next 20 years if he wanted it, Victor Wembenyama. They have a top four protected pick this summer and Zach Levine. Where did he say he wanted to play a couple years back on ESPN first take? When you look at the landscape, which player out there would you like to play with? When you, you think he would, we would complement each other. Who do you see? Man, you know, there's a lot of dudes out there I'd love to play with, but you know, is it don't be realistic? <laughs> you know, let's hear both. What's ideal. What's realistic. 
you know, everybody wants to play with the best players in the world. You know, I, I would love to go out there and play with, you know, a dude like LeBron James, you know, but you're not going to get those type of opportunities, I don't think. Um, Unless you wind up on the Lakers, that's right. That's right. He wanted to play with LeBron. <laughs> the dots, fellas. They be connecting here. Breadcrumbs, man. It's everywhere. And you guys just think someone's littering. You guys just think someone's messy. What's all these crumbs here? It's all part of a pattern. Wake up. <laughs> I mean, I haven't even said the best part. There's more. Who is Zach Levine's agent? Oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be represented by Bill Duffy, and then a year ago, he switched agents to Rich Paul of Clutch Sports. Did he have a tell-all where he assured everyone that he's not looking for a trade? Because, mm. <laughs> Well, if you want to follow the blueprint of a one Anthony Davis, if you want to get to L.A., get your money, get the max contract, and then he's potentially going to go right back from where college was at UCLA and play with the player he said two years ago he wanted to play with in LeBron James. So we have the clutch connection. We have the mid-January date and we have the Chicago Bulls, which Michael Pina over at The Ringer wrote a great piece about how the future in Chicago is as bleak and depressing as any organization in the league. But if they restart, he didn't point to the Lakers contracts and those deals potentially being had. But I'm just saying a lot of breadcrumbs are around just waiting to be eaten up. And I just think people need to watch Zach Levine going back to LA. And maybe that's why Kevin Pritchard was so excited after that win. It's because we don't have to get into the Lakers talks anymore. We're going to keep our team. We're top four in the Eastern Conference right now. We don't have to deal with all that. Herb Simon, who's 88 years old, he doesn't want to tank. Herb. Herb Simon. <laughs> I did this with Herb Jones, too. Herb Simon, maybe he knows that like if you deliver a playoff appearance, that will look very good for you, Mr. Pritchard. So th maybe that's what he's celebrating after that game. Not just beating the Lakers, but maybe he just knows that it made things that much easier for him and his workplace now that the Indiana Pacers don't have to tank. There's a trail of breadcrumbs to L.A. Are they gluten-free? Well, in order for that trade to happen, I mean, Mays, if you're keeping your third eye open, you need LeBron James healthy. There's no way they're going all in the Lakers and trading those picks if LeBron James isn't healthy and Anthony Davis isn't healthy. We are going to talk to Jeff Stotts of InStreetClothes.com, the injury guru on our Truth Teller series for the third time. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the grave lie not in the truth. But what you what do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. truth.
a returning truth teller, Jeff Stotts of InStreetClothes.com. He's got his third eye open. Third time on the show. Third eye open. There we go. It's a huge story. Injuries, player health, all of it. Jeff Stotts. The angel of death. <laughs> Jeff Stotts comes on to talk about bad news every single time. <laughs> I had that thought as soon as Kat got hurt last night. Tom and I had talked. And then, of course, all the stuff comes out with Towns going down. So the harbinger of doom is here. Let's get into that. Let's start there. The Carl Anthony Towns, it looked pretty brutal. Hashtag brutal. <laughs> Anytime anyone gets injured, the only way to describe the situation is hashtag brutal. Carl Anthony Towns is running back on defense, all of a sudden looks back at his lower leg, then just collapses to the ground and grabs his upper calf and then just stays there and has to be helped off of the floor, not putting any weight on that leg. Initially, of course, everyone goes to, oh, that looks like an Achilles because of the reaction where he's looking back as if someone just clubbed him across the leg. However, one thing that was different to me was that he was looking and grabbing at the upper calf rather than the lower calf. And I think you can correct me because you're way smarter and more uh, knowledgeable on these things. And that's why you're a truth teller and I'm not. That's more emblematic if he grabs the ankle area of a typical Achilles tear, but he's grabbing the upper leg. Did that stand out to you too? Yeah, I'm right with you. When I watched the video, because I wasn't watching that game live, but it started coming across my feed and everyone you know, starts tagging me. Hey, what do you think? What do you think? You nailed it on the head with the look back. That's one of the first things we look at is, does the person think they got kicked or attacked by a bat or whatever the case may be. Cause that's what a lot of times guys say that they thought someone kicked them or that something had happened from behind them. They look back and look confused because they don't understand what happened. And so I saw that and I was like, uh Oh, and then he does grab higher. So the big thing there is the calf is actually a muscle complex. So it's made up of multiple muscles, the gastrocnemius and the soleus. And we've actually learned a little bit more about this calf in NBA terms because of Damian Lillard's injury earlier in the year. Mm. He's currently sidelined with a soleus strain. So that specific muscle of the calf, but those two muscles have that conjoined tendon of the Achilles and that's what attaches to the heel. And so when that tendon ruptures, you lose the ability to point your toes to plantar flex. And Cat grabbed higher. He grabbed the muscle belly. So like the, the thick, meaty part of his calf. So that kind of had me thinking, okay, potentially calf. I think online, I likened it to when Luca got hurt last year, right before the postseason, because he kind of did the same thing. He was accelerating, playing it back and kind of looked around and then started grabbing that meaty calf area. And, and again, we know Luca missed the end of the regular season and into the postseason. So the big thing now is after the Timberwolves have come out and said it is a calf strain that, that does suggest that it's likely the muscle belly. Now, I still think there's some testing they need to do to make sure that it's not the Achilles. There, there are a couple of things the athletic trainers have probably already done. And if that Achilles was completely torn, they would know. There's a special test that where you squeeze the calf and it moves the foot. And if it doesn't move, the Achilles is ruptured. And so a lot of times in those cases, MRIs are just confirming what we already know. But the MRI that is likely going to be performed today will tell us the extent of that strain and where that strain actually is. If it's in the muscle belly, that's probably a best case scenario because those injuries tend to heal a little bit quicker because they're highly vascularized, good blood flow to that area. So they tend to heal a little bit smoother than the tendons or even what we call that muscular tendinous junction where we're starting to merge into that tendon. What causes these types of injuries? Is it wear and tear or is it a lack of 
flexibility and pushing the muscle past its point or what is the cause? It's probably a little bit of all three. You know, if the muscle is weakened from overuse, it can be more vulnerable to rupturing and you just plant and you put that tendon on stretch, right? And it pushes simply past, it can no longer function like it needs to. The tissues of the body have what we call yield points. And once they pass their yield point, they deform or tear or fail. And so it can be something simple like an excessive force isolated instance where all of a sudden that tendon just can't withstand the force. I've seen it happen. I've seen a guy tear his Achilles literally just walking across the weight room, put the weights down and just stepped (sighs) funny and generated enough force and it blew. That sounds like how I would blow my Achilles. 100%. (laughs) Minus weights. Hey, but our guy, Trey... Trey was walking across his classroom and tore his meniscus. Oh, he didn't walk. He was standing at the blackboard or whiteboard and he turned around and he tore his meniscus. Turned too fast. (laughs) Too much torque. Nice pivot on that meniscus. That'll (laughs) fail for you. So with the calf, it's kind of the same thing, right? Now we have seen where if there is some degeneration from overuse, you're going to be more likely it's going to be easier to tear that because it's just not as strong as it needs to be. But again, I've seen people catch an unlucky break where they generate the appropriate amount of force at the right angle at that time, and it just fails. So on your podcast with another truth teller, Brian Soderer, in Street Clothes, you reference the fact that there aren't that many high-profile major injuries in the league, but there's certainly a lot of injuries and games lost due to injury. We know about Kawhi. We know about Damian Lillard with his calf injury. But what do the numbers say about the actual prevalence of injuries and how many games have been lost due to injury this year. So we're entering the perfect point to have me on because we're hitting that first quarter mark with most teams finishing that first 20 games. And so as of last night, we were nearing 1400 for the first quarter. So 1400 games, which is about 250 games more than we were at the same point last season. Now those numbers seem high, but the rates are not maybe significantly different. But even if you raise the rates by just half a game, one extra half game lost for every game played, that's going to bump it up about 250 to 300 total games because of the number of games we play in the NBA. So I would say probably not significantly higher at this point, but still higher, which is concerning, especially this is the point of the season last year where things really turned. And part of that was COVID. I mean, COVID was a huge part of the numbers being so astronomically high last year from games 20 to games 41. We lost over 500 games lost to COVID and COVID protocols last year, huge spike right at this point last year. So I'm interested to see how many more illness games do we see? We know there's a flu bug going around that a lot of people are getting in the NBA. We used to call it that flu watch, you and me, Tom. Especially in Miami. Yep, lots of flu in Miami. Yep. <laughs> but now it's non-COVID illness, right? Like we, we don't even necessarily <laughs> know exactly what's going on. We just get the non-COVID illness. So I'm keeping an eye on that because I think we are going to potentially come under last year's numbers based on the fact that the COVID numbers were so incredibly high last year. But that doesn't mean the numbers won't still be elevated, especially if I filter that kind of stuff out. Right. And again, I think this is a situation that is going to be obviously monitoring throughout the year, but the early signs indicate we could be in for another high year in terms of injuries. What about load management days? Are teams fudging the numbers a little bit? You know, like Steph Curry won't play in New Orleans for whatever reason, but they're injuries. Like some of them, they're they're citing injuries. So is there a change in what you're seeing with teams that maybe at years past, they just say load management and then now they're putting in an injury? It's gotten really complicated because as far as games that are like rest games and isolated, like resting on a back-to-back or an injury management for coming back from injury, we're at 37, which doesn't sound like that much. But that doesn't include Iguodala, who hasn't played this year, 
with what the team is calling a left hip injury management. So are we really managing an injury or is it just an injury that has occurred? And right now I tend to throw that into the total of this is an injury. This is not an injury management thing because it is so long prolonged. It's different from like the Seth Curry who's coming off of offseason ankle surgery and he's missed five games throughout the season, but those are due to the Nets are calling injury management games as they limit his workload on back-to-backs or coming off of a high minutes game. Jeff in Charlotte, Gordon Hayward is out with a fracture in his shoulder. His wife took to social media to put the team on blast saying that he was misdiagnosed and he, or I guess a shoulder strain and, and actually went out there and played with the fractured shoulder. How often do you hear about that where a diagnosis is that far off? on what seems to be a pretty serious injury. So I think they just had to listen to soreness. I don't even think they had strain out there. Shoulder contusion. Yeah, contusion. That's exactly what it was. So is it some gamemanship, right? Are they just not revealing the extent of the injury? Because I mean, there have been plenty of times where I've had an injury listed as a contusion or soreness and then listening to like a player podcast. And he's like, yeah, actually I had a patella fracture or something like that. And so I go back and like Kawhi Leonard in the playoffs yeah. a couple of years ago. It's like, Oh, it's knee soreness day to day. And it's like, yeah, he tore his ACL. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> well, I think Jared Dudley was a big one too. Like he had what they called knee soreness for a long time. And ended up, he said on a pod that they yeah, had a small fracture in my kneecap, you know? So it's one of those things where, it's hard to really differentiate. And I just take what I'm given and then try to read the tea leaves where I can. You'll have a lot of times where a player will make a quote. And so I know that's the injury, but then it still doesn't change in terms of like the game notes and things like that. Or it's miscommunication. The big one is sprains versus strains, right? A sprain involves a ligament and a strain involves muscle. And a lot of times they get reported back and forth. And so there's a little bit of miscommunication there. And you're trying to figure out reading the tea leaves, what exactly is that injury so that we can be as accurate with my numbers, right. but then also try to understand what's going on with the player. And it's unfortunate because Charlotte's staff is a really good staff. Their medical team is really good. And I hate to see them kind of throw it on their bus there a little bit because it might have been something where they all knew it was a fracture. The team just opted to list it as a contusion or it was misdiagnosed. I guess her thing is that they played him though. Yeah. Regardless of how it's reported, he played in a game with this injury. That's where, to my mind, it ceases to be gamesmanship. And it's just like, you messed this one up because you can bullshit as long as you understand we're bullshitting. His shoulder's broken, right? But then, you know, the moment you put him in a game, that indicates you didn't know you believed your own bullshit pretty much. So I'm just curious, given that, you know, you do track these things, how often do you see that where not misreported, but misdiagnosed to the point where the, the player's out there and it should not be, or we find out later he shouldn't have been. We see it probably more than you would think. And a lot of that is the progression of the injury. It happens a lot like with the foot or the wrist because those bones are small. Mm-hmm. It happens with the ribs a lot as well as well. They'll call like a rib contusion and then it just continues to be a problem. And then they go do an x-ray and they don't see a fracture. What they see is some healing. They see some new bone. It looks a little bit different. And they're like, oh, wow, you actually had a fracture. We just didn't see it on the initial x-ray. Mm-hmm. So do we call that a misdiagnosis? Probably, right? But given every tool we had... We just didn't see it. And so now we continue to treat it like now that we know it's a fracture and move on. And that's where you have to find that healthy balance of what are you seeing and what is the player reporting and finding that balance between treating the symptoms, which are often helpful for the the athlete, 
but then also treating the underlying cause so that the symptoms stop and that they don't just continue to do this yo-yo back in and out of the lineup where they ramp up and then it starts to hurt again or so on and so forth. You said yo-yo in and out of the lineup. I want to talk about LaMelo Ball and the rest of the ankle injuries on Charlotte. You said it like they had an incredible track record with injuries in Charlotte. Their staff has done a great job. And then this preseason, LaMelo turns his ankle pretty badly and then misses a month, basically, with an ankle injury and then just a freak accident, stepped on a fan's foot, courtside fan, and then re-aggravated that injury. Is there... Anything we can point to and say, like, why are like Terry Rozier's had an injury? Dennis Smith Jr. have a couple of these. Is there anything that you can see in the numbers, trends, ankle injuries? Is this isolated to Charlotte? They just have a bad luck with ankle injuries or is something larger happening around the league? I looked at the rates for ankle sprains because I think someone on Twitter asked me, ankle sprains seem really up. What's the deal? And the rates are the same for the last couple of seasons in terms of ankle sprains, the frequency in which they're occurring. Now, again, it is frustrating, especially in like LaMelo Ball's case where he was out for 33 days, came back and then stepped on a fan, you know, and yeah. it's just hard. The big thing with, with ankle injuries, especially ankle sprains, is that I have to remind everybody is especially with LaMelo who had a grade two sprain where we're talking about partial tearing of the ligaments. So the fibers partially tore. Like we're not talking about microscopic damage. We're talking about literal fibers of the ligament tear that scar tissue develops and builds back. And the athlete might feel better, you know, and they might be able to do everything functionally. But like I said earlier, with that yield point, the biomechanical properties of that ligament have been forever altered. You can get it close to 99%, but once it's past that yield point, it's forever deformed. I think Brian and I likened it to a rubber band straight out of the package, right? When you use that rubber band, it works great. Binds your papers, binds whatever it needs to. But over time, that rubber band passes its yield point. It becomes deformed. And it's never going to be that exact same rubber band like it was. Ligaments act similar. Now, what we can do is offset that by doing things like building up the strength of the muscles that stabilize that joint so that if that ligament is stressed, the stabilizers can take over and help reduce that amount of stress. And you have to have that point where the athlete is functionally cleared, everything looks good, And we feel like the integrity of the ligament is good as well. That doesn't mean a re-sprain can't happen or a freak injury can happen, but we're trying to mitigate the risk there and reduce the risk as much as possible. And it gets harder and harder the more frequently you're injured, whether that's a strain or a sprain. LeBron missed some time to that groin injury that he had a couple of years ago in his first season with LA. Are we now on... LeBron is not fragile, but we have to be careful with him. Watch human. Yeah, he's human. (laughs) LeBron is in fact human. Yeah, absolutely. And that's simply because we're in unprecedented territory with the amount of minutes this guy has played. I am working through all my metrics constantly, and I'm one day going to develop an Iron Man characteristic and it's going to be named after LeBron. Like it's going to have some cool acronym because of where we are with him and the sheer force at which he plays. But Time is undefeated. No, but he's making commercials about that. Jeff, yeah, exactly. There are these commercials out there. He's handling father time. It seems okay. But uh, it still wears you down and you still become more vulnerable, especially to soft tissue injuries, which is what we've seen with LeBron. It hasn't been necessarily one big thing. It's just been soft tissue injuries, which do happen over time. So as we progress into this latter phase of LeBron's career, it's just something that's going to come even for a guy that does as much as he does to take care of his body. So he is human? <laughs> Just to confirm, <laughs> is there an outside of this sport comp that you look at as far as what he's been able to do? Probably not. Because like when I started thinking about like Ironman, right? Like 
Cal Ripken Jr. obviously comes up. Mm-hmm. He didn't play the velocity and speed and intensity. Yeah, nobody's hitting him. <laughs> yeah, he just rubs some chewing tobacco on his knee and he'd get back out there. Maybe the closest thing is Tom Brady in the NFL for his longevity. But even Brady had an ACL tear and a navicular fracture and other injuries as well that he just had the benefit of being able to manage them a little bit differently than LeBron did. So it's really hard to cross sport. I mean, that'd be an interesting thing to think about. You're going to have me in my head about that for the next couple of days now. Is there anybody in the NBA that's on track to approach what LeBron has accomplished? Even 90%. Damian Lillard was on that track. And then last year, Clay Thompson was on that track. <laughs> Lillard wasn't. So the last couple of years, he had the abdominal and now, now the calf. What about Giannis? How's Giannis's durability compared to LeBron James? Giannis is a pretty good one. He did have the knee injury, which the bubble helped him there because that happened right before we went into lockdown. So the lost time is reduced by that. And then he did have the second scare while they were in the finals where he hyperextended it again. But he's been pretty resilient bouncing back. I mean, that's that's one definitely. And he has the chance to get that long because he was so young coming into the league. Jokic. Yeah, because when I look at Jokic, I think, yeah. Plays just like LeBron. Yeah. He has the physique of LeBron, just like LeBron. (laughs) Same intensity as well. He's getting all the abuse. He takes abuse and he keeps on trucking. Let's switch gears over to Philly. Lots of foot injuries. Can you dispel the dots that are connecting with all the foot injuries in Philly? And what's the larger story there? So the weird thing with the Philly issue is it's their three main players, Maxi, Harden, and Embiid and all three different types of tissues. Mm. So you had a fracture with Maxi, you had a strain, so a muscle with Harden, and a sprain with Embiid, so ligaments. So we're talking about three completely different tissues involved in these foot injuries. So it's mm. it's unfortunate because like in Maxi's case, it was traumatic, right? He came down and the bone broke. Harden's was a little harder to see. It didn't. It wasn't necessarily like a contact play. It almost was like a non-contact. And the muscles of the foot are really difficult because they're layered and there's a lot of muscles in the foot we tend to take those for granted a little bit. We don't realize how many muscles are actually in the foot. And then in beads, he does have a history of foot injuries, but this was not bone. It was ligament. And he's back and looked, I would say, pretty good last night, leading them to a win. So the fact that it's all three different things, it's hard to say, hey, this is a problem in Philly, because again, it, it involves three different, it's three different types of injuries. What's the most complex body part that's featured in sports injuries. They don't say brain. (laughs) And I get it. Brains are really complex. But like you said, the foot is a very complex body part. What ranks number one among the body parts? I would say probably foot from just the variability in it, because there are so many little ligaments, so many muscles, and then so many bones. And there's just so much, you know, a metatarsal is not an avicular fracture, but they can have similar complications because the blood supply isn't great to the area. You know, knees are traumatic, the ACL, the meniscus, but we know what those injuries are. We kind of have the timelines for those types of injuries. Mm -hmm. Not so much in the foot. There's just a high degree of variability. You look at a guy like Embiid, who missed the first two seasons of his career to issues with a bone injury in his foot. And then Kevin Durant, same thing, bone issue in his foot. And it was complicated and it had multiple kind of setbacks. So I'd say, especially in basketball, given the size of these guys and the amount of weight that goes through their body, foot's got to be near the top for me. Mace, I mean, I'm curious what you guys think about this, because when we're talking about the foot, I feel like teams need to stop specifying that it's a toe injury and just say foot. Because 
Whenever someone's out with a toe injury, it just sounds so soft. <laughs> the dude stubbed his toe and he's out for the season. There was a meme going around for football. Brian Robinson shot twice. Michael Thomas hurts his toe out for the season. And it's like, yeah, but if you've suffered like a toe injury, it's not stubbing your toe. <laughs> I feel like teams need to just say foot injury and then people wouldn't start making fun and clowning people for having a season ending toe injury. You're really calling out Desmond Bain here. Aren't you, Tom? <laughs> say his name. It's okay. Jeff, tell Tom why Desmond Bain's toe injury is serious. Desmond Bain, what a loser. <laughs> it is the big toe, particularly. They try to make it sound even better, like when they call it the great toe. The great <laughs> toe. <laughs> the giant toe. It's like Charlie Brown, the great pumpkin. <laughs> exactly. Almost always the first contact we make with the ground, right, is our toes, right? So much of that force is diverted. It starts at our toes. Everybody can stub the toe, and you know how bad that hurts. Now talk about something in being unstable in that joint. The biggest injury that limited Shaquille O'Neal was a toe injury. Deion Sanders, one of the best cornerbacks ever, was severely hampered by turf toe. You're right. It does sound soft, but the amount of force that generates through our, our toes is huge. It's massive. And it is that first part, first contact and generating force through our body. And if you've got a limitation there, it throws off everything and it can lead to other problems down the kinetic chain and really be problematic. So while it does sound soft... I'm not going to call Desmond Bates off to his face. That's for sure. Wasn't it Blake Griffin a few years ago had a toe injury and it was super painful or a turf toe or whatever it was. And he got made fun of and clowned. I mean, Brandon Ingram has a toe injury right now. Otto Porter Jr. Mark Helfoltz. I feel like we need to start a campaign to like save players from getting clowned on for their toe injuries. I will do my best. That'll be the next thing on the industry closed docket is to save the toe. I thought you were going to say it's your bane of your existence and it would have uh. been perfect. Desmond Bain. Yes. Jeff was telling us how complex the foot is. So I think it's important to distinguish the toe because otherwise it could just get lost in all the other tendons and ligaments in the foot. You want to make sure that people know, cause it might be a little different. It might be a little separate. And I don't want to hurt Jeff, his job. He loves the specificity. He loves the detail. Like that's what they live for. Yeah. We got to consider Jeff's spreadsheet. <laughs> first <laughs> and all these injury reports. I appreciate that, man. Very much appreciated. <laughs> so we have a segment here called Code Breakers. And I thought of this when the cat injury happened. I was waiting for the report that the team fears mm. an injury, fears the Achilles. <laughs> Whenever you see that, the word fears, it seems like the reporter got the information that they tore it and they know it, but they don't want to report it until it's confirmed. So is that, as we talk to the Grim Reaper <laughs> of sports here, when you see fear, fears. team fears X, Y, and Z, do you already put it in your spreadsheet? Like, yep, I already know. Yeah. And I'll, I'll happily change it if it's wrong. Right. And I have a lot of faith and trust in the, the tests that the athletic trainers and the medical staff are doing. You know, these specialized tests that we we all learn in, in school are pretty accurate. You know, there's the Lockman's test that can test the stability of the ACL. We've got the Thomas test. We've got all these different, the McMurray's. Yeah. What is that test? So for like Lockman's, we're talking about translating the lower leg bones. So the ACL runs crisscross behind your kneecap, connecting your tibia and your femur. And so really what happens is the ACL is responsible for preventing your lower leg bones from going too far forward. And so if the ACL is there, when you 
hold the femur and move the tibia, you can feel a little clunk, a little end feel. Like you can feel the ACL doing what it's supposed to do. If it's torn, there's a lot of laxity it gives and you can feel. And now again, a lot of times we're saying, okay, we think it's positive. Let's go get the MRI to confirm. But what we're talking about is testing those structures for their integrity. Again, with the calf, you squeeze the calf. If the foot moves, the Achilles is there. But sometimes if the foot doesn't move, you know, okay, it's ruptured and it's not doing what it's supposed to do. So we fear that it's an Achilles tear. (laughs) Is there an injury that, have you ever seen an injury where, okay, let me just come out and say it. Sean Marion had something in his knee that, If you ran imaging, he would absolutely fail any physical. But he was amazingly durable and a pogo stick. For whatever reason, it just didn't matter. DeWan Blair didn't have ACLs, right? What's kind of a weird injury like that you've you've encountered in your in your years? The Blair one is one I I instantly thought of. You know, we have some strange things that the body just learns to adapt. How does that work? How does that happen? How can you not have ACLs and just be fine? So one of the things we tell people in regards to ACLs, you don't need the ACL to function. You don't. You can take your ACL, you don't need to get it repaired unless you're trying to perform at a high level because it does provide so much stability that without it, your knee is going to be unstable. You are going to open up yourself to other injuries somewhere along the road and it can lead to further developments like osteoarthritis, things like that. But sometimes if your 60-year-old grandmother tears her ACL and all she's doing is gardening at the highest level, maybe we don't go in and do an ACL repair. High-level gardening though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So high impact. The body adapts, you know, the muscles take over, can can compensate for that to help reduce some of of that. I've seen some terrible injuries, ankle subluxations and ankle fractures and things like that. And for me, I think the weird thing is a lot of times the response by the athlete, because I've seen an athlete dislocate their ankle. We're talking about their shoe is sideways and they're just sitting there cool, calm and collected. And then I've had people, you know, (laughs) stub their their toe. toe. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. And you would have thought everything's going to come into an end. So again, this kind of go back to what you said about complex, the brain aspect, the motor learning, um, the sensory perception of, of those kinds of injuries is something that is very interesting to me and widely varies from athlete to athlete. Okay. Big debate, big dilemma in the NBA is when you have a player who's used to starting throughout their entire career, but they're injured or they don't fit with the starters. Maybe you bring them off the bench. Hmm. Russell Westbrook. Oh, is that who you're talking about? Do you have a pride category in your spreadsheet? (laughs) (laughs) No bruised egos. No tag for bruised ego. Lakers fear Russell Westbrook's pride will be damaged if they bring him off the bench. Well, there was that story. And then there was Kawhi Leonard where Ty Lue was like, that's nasty. The idea that we brought him off the bench, we need to put him into the starting lineup. I can't believe we did that. As an athletic trainer, someone who studies this, what is the science on starting versus coming off the bench and whether it does potentially have impact on health. You know, I think the big thing is you guys know, these guys are creatures of habit. And so not only are they mentally trained to do one thing over time, a guy like Ray Allen comes to mind with his, his repetition and the way he approached things, you break that routine. It can throw them off mentally, but it can also throw them off physically. If their body is used to hitting the markers of when the muscles are ready and those kinds of things, yeah. it can increase that that risk of injury. And so you'll see a lot of the guys, I think Westbrook's even doing it now too, where they 
go from a starter to a bench roll where they have the bike in the background, just something to keep those muscles moving. We talked about sitting on the bench. What does that mean? Do you limit the way you prep for a game in terms of those kinds of things? And do I need to have the heat packs and the hydroculators and everything right there to stay warm? And then we see it post game too, with guys that haven't gotten a lot of big minutes going out and putting in a workout, going in and getting a lifting session in because they want to make sure that their body is still engaged and active and doing the things it needs to do. With Kawhi, Jeff, is there any comp in your database or do we just need to wait until we see him for several games now before we we change our mind about whether he can play going forward? He's an outlier for me. Whenever we start looking at injuries and things like that, oftentimes I don't include him because the situations are so unique. I don't know Kawhi personally. I don't know where it's coming from, in term, but he is historically, and this is not just the ACL, but historically treated himself conservatively when it comes to return to play. We saw it with the patellar injuries last year in San Antonio, but it started even before that, easing things along and, and moving at his pace and not really moving on what I consider what the numbers tell us, right? Like he's always kind of been an outlier. So it's hard to predict what's going on. You know, and we heard all these things. He missed a longer period of time for this recent ACL tear. And then he missed more time to start the year. We thought he was going to be back and then he missed additional time. So is he one of those guys that's just hypersensitive and hyper aware of when something is off just a little bit, it completely throws him out of whack? Is it something really going on with the knee? It's probably somewhere in between. I do know, again, like I said with Charlotte, he's been with two great staffs, three great staffs if you include Toronto. Right. Those three groups, highly respected. And so I think this is one where the individual is dictating things maybe a little bit more than in some other cases, which makes it difficult to gauge for everybody, right? Difficult for the medical staff, difficult for the player, because it's just a complex situation. Do you imagine that it's one thread connecting all of these injuries or is it just disparate injuries and he's just takes his time in his recovery? It would be unwise to completely ignore that all those parts are kind of linked, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I do think given the time frame and, and some of the things we've seen that, that again, I think he might just be a little bit hypersensitive to something is wrong. And I've had previous knee problems. Okay. I don't want to go down that road again, even though it might not necessarily lead that way. Right. I'm going to be aware of that and more cautious and more deliberate in my recovery to make sure that I'm back and not just at like 98%, but I'm back at hundred percent pain-free, no issues and going from there. So Jeff, you're at, in Street Clothes on Twitter. You are also podcasting with Brian Sutterer. In Street Clothes, the podcast. Where's your written work that people can find if they love listening to you and love hearing your your wisdom, but would also love to read your stuff? If they love your wisdom, but don't like your voice. Where can they-, <laughs> they can always find me and make it easy on you guys. Instreetclothes.com. You know, I try to put some stuff out in the written form. Also, we rank all the medical staff so you can see how the teams did the previous year with games lost and things like that. So you can visit the site. And then I still do fantasy analysis for rotowire.com. So if you're a fantasy player and you want to look at your football, basketball, or baseball teams, I'll write for those sites as well. Jeff, I don't know if I've asked you this before, but do you have a paywall portion of your site that has the data, the database or anything like that? I've looked into a couple of subscription models and just never been really happy with what they look like. But, you know, if Twitter falls apart, maybe that's the, <laughs> the model I go to. But I like educating people. I like having these conversations and I felt kind of weird putting it behind a paywall. But if you did put it behind a paywall, could you help us out? Oh, yeah. Y'all will get free codes for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Enter code angel of death. <laughs> 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 Angel of Death and Truth Teller, Jeff Stotts, thank you for joining us here on Basketball Illuminati. Can't wait for your fourth return to the show. Always a pleasure, guys. What does that look like? 
you doing your own research? Are you doing studies yourself? Are you in the lab on a nightly basis? What are you doing? Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Doing your own research. I'm not a scientist. I'm not here to tell everyone that this is it. For me, it's just um, just giving everyone a chance to do their own research and find their own knowledge. Last week, fellas, I did some research on travel calls. And I mean, you had written me as we were planning and prepping the show last week. What about palming? Does this include palming? Yeah, because I feel like every game now when I'm watching, there's palming all the time. Palming violations, I should say, called. I'm not one of these old people like, oh, they keep carrying and they discontinue dribble. I'm saying like I'm watching refs call it a lot. And the refs are no longer saying carry on my wayward son. Oh, tie in. Mm. Kansas. And neither is Kendrick Perkins. Those ideas are just dust in the wind. Dustin? Wait, isn't that? Yeah, it's Kansas. Okay. No. Yeah. Isn't that Will Ferrell from old school? Too old school for you, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Close my eyes. <laughs> That's good. All right, Tom. Jordan Poole got called for four or five in a game, which really opened <laughs> yeah. my eyes to the whole situation. Didn't need a third eye for that one. But what is your research indicated? Yeah, so I did some research here on palming in the NBA, and I can't believe I missed this, but you said it. November 1st, post-game press conference, Steve Kerr talked about Jordan Poole getting three palming violations whistled in one game. Did you know that was maybe going to be an emphasis going into the game, or what did you just think about that? I I guess there was an email that went out today, and um, honestly, I didn't check my email. Like, you know, I... We got a game today. I'm not looking at email. So uh, I was shocked um, because basically the whole league does that. They've been doing it ever since Alan Iverson um, convinced the referees that it wasn't a carry. It is a carry. What Jordan does is a carry. Um, but the whole league's been doing it. So um, I guess I got to start checking my email on game days. But I missed this. Later in that press conference, he actually, on the way out, said... I'm looking forward also to next week's email where they announce they're going to start calling traveling also, because that's for sure coming, because I know if they're going to fix the palming, they're for sure going to fix the traveling. I miss this. I miss this. Hmm. But around the same time, November 1st, the NBA put out a decree, whether it was in writing or unwritten, that they're going to start calling not just travel calls, mm-hmm. but palming, discontinued dribble. These two things, palming in the NBA has become such a big deal because Jordan Poole is obviously a high-profile player, but also they never called this. They never called this. So much so that in October, okay, to start the season, the NBA was basically ignoring that altogether. There were just six violations called in the first 102 games of October. Six palming violations in an entire month. In fact, from October 27th to October 30th, across 30 games in four days, there were zero palming violations called. And then the Jordan Poole thing happened. November 1st. At Miami. Three palming violations in one game. Something changed. 
I was at that game. You were there to see it. Yes. Wait. You were in the room where it happened. So Amin is at the Tyler Hero traveling game. Uh Uh-huh. And, wow. All right. This is too suspicious. This is too suspicious (laughs) to me. I don't know if I can trust you anymore. You're the Allstate Mayhem guy. That wherever you go, mayhem ensues. They start calling palming and travel calls when you're in the building. From November 1st, I mean, to November 4th, a four-day span. Remember, just a week prior, a four-day span where there's zero palming violations called across the league. From November 1st to November 4th, there were 16 palming violations called. Coincidence. There was zero, and then there were 16. In the month of November, I mean, Mays, we've had 93 palming violations through November 27th. There were six in October. Now there are 93. So my question is, who complained? What happened? Other than Amin going to the game? <laughs> yeah. If we want to put that aside, that Amin is the mayhem of officiating. I don't know if I can. Who would want a crackdown on travels and palming? Why did the NBA all of a sudden? Remember, if you listen to last week's episode, point of emphasis usually happens to start the season. Mm-hmm. But as I just explained, there were six palming violations for the entire month of October. 0.06 palming violations per game. And now in the month of November, we're at 0.47. So eight times they're calling palming violations eight times more than they did to start the season. Why? Well, Tom, I guess my question would be, we'll start with who are the biggest culprits of this? Who's been called the most? I guess that's the only way we can determine who palming benefits and by virtue of it getting called on them who it hurts the most well this season no surprise here jordan Poole, six violations no one else more than three wow i don't know why they're cracking out on jordan Poole as if he's because he does it a lot (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's as simple as nba scoring had gotten so out of hand that coaches were complaining that there's just nothing the defense can do anymore. If you're allowing them to carry, and if you're allowing them to travel when they start their first step, what are we supposed to do? I don't think there was too much scoring in the sense that like the NBA wants scoring. The NFL, same deal. They want to protect the quarterbacks. They want to make sure that they get scoring up and that fans like scoring, right? Chicks dig the long ball, as they say. Right. And so I don't think the NBA is like, hey, there's too much scoring happening. But yes, Jordan Poole last year led the NBA with seven palm violations. This is the list of players with three, according to stathead.com. This is where all this data is coming from, stathead.com, our friends at Basketball Reference. Giannis had three. Darius Garland had three. Trey Young had three. Lonzo Ball had three. A lot of young up-and-coming players in the league. I don't think you want to crack down on those guys. But all time, since 96, when the NBA started tracking this, and we have the database over at stathead.com, Do you guys want to guess, since I did the research, Mm. which player since 1996 has the most palming violations on record? 102. Allen Iverson. According to this research, only 41 for Allen Iverson. Whoa. It's funny because he was the reason why they decided the original crackdown on palming was because Allen Iverson's crossover was so exaggerated. He'd come all the way out here and his hand was under the ball. Oh, not Iverson, huh? Is it a point guard, Tom? Mm. Kind of. That's not a solid answer, yes or no. So, Well, here's the thing. It's not going to be a star, right? They would never call it on a star. Not that many times. I'm going to take a shot in the dark where there's a Monte. There's a way. Monte Ellis. 
Oh, that's a good guess. That's a good guess. It is not Monte, but that is in the same ballpark, what we're talking here. Not a point guard. In terms of role and in terms of how fun they are to watch with the ball in their hand. Jamal Crawford. Bingo. Wow. Friend of the program, yep. Jamal Crawford. 102 violations in his career, or at least since 96. Kobe Bryant, 63, coming in second, tied with Kevin Durant, wow. Kobe Bryant and Kevin Durant have 63. Jamal Crawford has 102. And then the other, Tony Parker. Wow. They never called that shit when he played us. <laughs> they must have called that shit when they were playing the Bobcats. Could use that. Yeah. That is the list. The mystery is solved now that we've figured out that Amin was in the building for both of those games that you are the culprit here. You are the suspect. I'm terrified of what's going to happen tonight, a.k.a. last night <laughs> at the Warriors-Mavs game that Amin is in attendance. If there's suddenly an outbreak in three-second calls, oh yeah, we know who to blame. Keep your third eye open. Jeff, we got the serious stuff out of the way. Now we can talk about bullshit. This is the serious stuff we're about to do here. A means most serious topic of discussion. Star Wars has wrapped up another fantastic series on Disney Plus. What were your general thoughts coming out of the twelve episode run of Andor? Well, I haven't finished. Whoa. So here's the thing is I have an athletic trainer schedule, right? And so my schedule and my wife's schedule just do not mix. And we're trying to figure out a way to do it together. I finally just said, Hey, I'm, I'm diving in. Sorry. <laughs> How deep are you? I'm six episodes oh, and they just wow. did the heist. So the I, I am loving so far. It was a little slow. I'll be honest to start the first couple episodes. Really. They built the world, but it reminds me so much of the early novelizations of star Wars. Mm. So when we didn't have any other form, but the books, Maybe not necessarily the Timothy Zahn books, because that was so much of like the same characters and rehashing, you know, kind of telling stories of Leia and Luke and, and whatnot. But when we started getting into like the old Jedi, old Republic stuff, and then even some of the new stuff that has progressed over the last couple of years, where we're in the world of Star Wars, but we're not necessarily focused on the familiar characters. I like that. You know, we're using it as a, as a background to tell new stories. And that was what I liked so much about Rogue One was it was very closely tied to Star Wars, obviously to the movies and you had familiar characters, but it didn't depend on those characters to tell the story that it was looking for. Unlike Obi-Wan who we had kind of fit around peg in a square hole, right? Like we have this history and we want to go back and tell these new stories, but there's so much history already there that it's, we're trying to navigate that. And it just, to me, got too complex and too difficult and kind of missed the mark a little bit, but so far this has been a lot of, fun. and it doesn't feel like Star Wars, but it still feels like Star Wars, if that makes any sense. It's hitting the beats that are keeping us kind of anchored in that world, but it's also, we're developing complex new characters that aren't necessarily dependent on the force or, or telling those same stories. Well, you don't need to know any of that stuff. 
to be able to enjoy Andor. I think that's the moral of the story is that this is something that someone who does not know anything about Star Wars can walk in and watch and enjoy because it's great storytelling, it's great character development, and shot beautifully it's awesome visually that's that's the big thing right like it looks like they spent a ton of money to make it look good which is so nice to see and again i think part of that is getting off a of tatooine right just not having another story in the desert where it's just sand i don't like sand <laughs> of course and it gets everywhere i'm so excited for you man it ramps up it keeps building and building and building oh man episode six yeah oh, it means God. trying to just contain all of the spoilers that he's got but enjoy jeff i'm excited to hear what you think at the end of the run i'll have to come back on for visit number four and finish out the series 